All right, thank you tonight, Kent, for our music. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. Now, on Sunday night, we have finished our study in the book of Hosea. So I am doing uh, four messages in a row. This morning, I spoke on salvation, and tonight, on the security of our salvation. And uh, next Sunday, I'm going to speak on how to have assurance of that. And then Sunday night, on evangelism, how we apply it to evangelism. I've got my Bible open to Romans chapter 8, and I'll read you a few verses from verse 35 to the end. I think the greatest verses on eternal security in the Bible. We'll use that as our starting place and go from there. Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for we are for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just in case uh, you think he missed something, he puts at the end, nor any other created thing can separate us from love. And that, by the way, means you also. You can't separate yourself from the Lord. Now, eternal security is different from assurance, which I'll speak on later, uh, because eternal security means that once you're saved, you're always saved, that that is our security that we have in Christ. Whereas assurance means you may kind of doubt sometimes whether you're truly saved. That doesn't mean you lost it. It doesn't mean you don't have salvation, but you can doubt it. How can we have the assurance about it that we should have? That's what I'll speak on next week. So when we say once you're saved, you're always saved, we believe that. Uh, if, if we talk about a no-so salvation, I believe that. You know, there are really only two views on eternal security when it comes right down to it, and that is either you have it and can lose it, <laughs> or you have it and you can't lose it. There's really no in-between uh, on those things. Although, for those who believe you can lose your salvation, there are different divisions of people that look at it a different way. There's a group called Reformed Arminians, Reformed Arminianism. They believe that you, you can, with your free will, accept salvation, and you can, with your free will, give it back. And so you have the same free will in giving it back as you do receiving it. And then there are the normal Wesleyan Arminians who believe sin in your life will cause you to lose your salvation unless you repent of it uh, right away. When you repent of it, it's taken care of. So you can lose it and get it back, lose it and get it back. The, the uh, Reformed brand says once you lose it, you're done. Or if you give it back, you, uh, the Lord will not give it back to you again. Now, in, if you believe in security, you're somewhat of a Calvinist. I mean, one way or another, the difference between Arminian and Calvin, uh, Arminius and Calvin, wa was this, eternal security. So if you believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, you're at least some degree in that Calvinistic side. So really strong Calvinists like the word perseverance. Uh, the election that saved you will also make you persevere throughout your life. Uh, milder or uh, moderate Calvinists like the word preservation. 
So as we go through our life, we will sin as Christians. God preserves us and uh, keeps us. Now, there are a lot of reasons for misunderstanding this, and that is uh, some people are truly saved and they're just taught wrong. At least from my point of view, they're wrong. And so you can be taught lots of different things. And some people maybe are truly saved, but they're being taught the wrong thing about eternal security. But some are truly not saved. And then at some point in their life, they walk away. And you say, well, did they, were they saved and then lose it? No, in our view, they were never saved in the first place. If you have been saved by grace, a few things you, you need to remember. You still sin. The, the Christian sins. We're not above sin at all. There's no sinless perfection in this life, even for a believer. And you may doubt. You may go through times where you say, I'm not sure. I need help. I think especially children do this. If a child is saved at a young age, it's very natural for some time in their growing up years to come to you and say, you know, I'm not sure, I'm afraid, or whatever, and we have to sit down and help them. Or you may just fall into error uh, about this doctrine, of course. But if you're saved in Christ, your salvation depends on Jesus Christ, not on you. He's the one keeping you. You're not the one keeping yourself saved. My old pastor that I grew up under used to, used to say, I know some people... Uh, aren't sure whether they still have their salvation or not, but he said when the rapture happens, they'll still go with us even if it's kicking and screaming. <laughs> they're, they're still going to go uh, because they're still born again. So um, if you accepted Christ by faith and you received eternal life from God because that is what the Bible told you to do, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so you live the rest of your life being eternal, eternally secure because that is what the Bible says. So when it right, really comes down to it, we have to look at these verses and these passages in the Scripture and say, what does the Bible say? And we have to take it that way and not, not put our theology or our uh, uh, scheme of things over that. We need to take the Bible for what it says. So look with me, if you will. If you don't have a bulletin, grab one. There's an outline on it. Or if you're watching on our screen, you see the outline there. Because it's kind of an involved outline, so you'll want to you'll see it. The basis of salvation, the promises, the misunderstandings, and the confidence that we can have. I hope these things help all of us and whoever uh, might listen to this. So the basis of security you'll see, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, our, our salvation has involved all three. There are things that the, the Bible says that God the Father does for us. There are things that the Son of God does for us. There are things that the Holy Spirit does for us. If we can lose our salvation, in my view, one of those has failed in its job. Somebody didn't follow through, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. But to me, the Bible makes it plain, and we can trust in that. So, for example, the Father, uh, I know you don't have all of these words there, but number one, we read in Romans 8 that uh, it is His love that keeps us. So Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? And then he goes on to say, it is God that does it. And he ends up saying, uh, none, no other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So 
if that's true, how can you separate yourself or anyone else separate you from God? Not only that, but his power keeps us. 1 Peter 1, 5 says, who uh, we are begotten again are kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are kept by God from now until the last time. God keeps you. And then God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful by whom you are, were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. He's faithful to what he does. And you remember in John uh, chapter 10 about the hand of God, and in a minute I'll say the same thing about the hand of Jesus Christ. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I think that's a strong statement. You are in God's hand. Again, it's his responsibility to keep you, and he does keep you. So here's the Father's uh, part in it, and I only read four things, and there could be a longer list than that. And then with the Son, first of all, uh, we are part of his bride. We are, we are the, the uh, bride of Christ, looking forward to the marriage of Christ. Will he break his promise to us? Will he break his covenant to us? Husbands are supposed to love their wives, Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, that divorce will never happen, and uh, ours shouldn't either. And not only that, but here's the hand of, uh, in that same passage, in uh, John chapter 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You're in God the Father's hand. You're in God the Son's hand. I'd say that's in pretty good hands uh, that you're in. And Here's something about his position I think is interesting. In Colossians 3, Paul says, You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Or in 1 Corinthians 3.23, You are Christ, and Christ is God's. That's kind of like saying, God, You are put into the hand of Jesus Christ, who holds you in his hand. And then Jesus Christ is put into the hand of God, that holds him. So you're kind of double protected in that you are in Christ who is in God. And in that position, uh, you are secure. And then, of course, you know about his intercession. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father as our advocate making intercession for us. Romans 8.34, who also maketh intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him seeing or because he ever lives to make intercession for him. So every time you sin, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ covers you because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father as your lawyer, as your advocate, saying, he's mine. My blood has covered him. I don't know how you can say that Jesus fails at that. I don't think he does. And then the Holy Spirit. Here are four things that the Holy Spirit does. Number one, he regenerates us. So he's the one that gave us life, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus 3, 5. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
Once he does that, he indwells us. So secondly, there is indwelling. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, you have of God, you are not your own? Think about that. You belong to God, and God in the form of Holy Spirit, in the personal Holy Spirit, is in you because you belong to him. Can you be taken away from that? Paul said in Romans 8, you can't be. Then in Ephesians, he tells us two things, that he both seals us and that he's also the earnest of our salvation. So in uh, Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Listen to that. You are sealed, and not just for now, but unto the day of redemption, when you are resurrected or translated into the presence of God. That sealing, you, you know those seals that they used to put on, on things? Well, the seven-sealed book in the book of Revelation is sealed by God, and no one can open it but whom? Jesus Christ. And so if we're sealed and a sealed book, then no one can open that seal except the person who owns it, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, not only that, but we are the earnest of salvation, uh, Ephesians 1.14, until the purchase of, or, or the redemption of the purchased possession. So the earnest is what? It's down payment. So God has put a down payment on you, and the down payment he has put on you is the Holy Spirit in you. And so will he not come and redeem his purchased possession? Won't he come to closing <laughs> and, and then bring you uh, into heaven? Of course he will. So there's a down payment, an earnest money, that is. And that's the Holy Spirit himself. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit, you can't be unborn, you can't be disindwelt, you can't be unsealed, you can't be uninherited, and, and lastly, you can't be unbaptized. In Ephesians 12, 13, for by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. In other words, he's put believers into the church of Jesus Christ, which again is the, is the bride of Christ, and you can't be taken out of the body of Christ. It belongs to him, and the Holy Spirit puts you there. Let me finish this first section with a well-known verse in 2 Timothy 1.12. You remember these words that the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded, he says, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, all the way to that day. Now, when he says I, that I have committed, that word paratheke means a deposit, a trust. Just like you would go down to your bank and you put a deposit there and you trust that they are able to keep your money safe. Well, Paul is saying that I have committed my soul. I have put it on deposit. I have put it in his trust and he's able to guard the deposit. It's exactly what he says in 2 Timothy 1.12. So Peter will remind us in 1 Peter 4.19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him as unto a faithful creator. You deposit your soul to him because he's a faithful creator. He can do anything. He created everything. He created you, as a matter of fact. So the basis of security really is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
Now, secondly, there are promises of security. As a matter of fact, a lot of the verses that we've just read are really promises, aren't they? Promises that we have eternal life. But I want to I wanna emphasize these three things that I have here. And the first is that he has told you that when you get saved, you have everlasting life. Now, if you can lose it, it wasn't everlasting. And so how can that be? I know that there are various explanations of that, that it's kind of the nature of life being everlasting life and so forth like that. But it is eternal. Ionios means forever and ever. So we have these wonderful verses, John 3, 16. God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes him should not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Titus 1, 2, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He's promised that to you, and he's promised that it is everlasting life. And Hebrews 5, 9, Being made perfect, he became the author of, of eternal salvation unto them that obey him, that is, to believe in him. He's the author of eternal salvation. You know, that word I, I said, ionios, means, means forever. And uh, there's a, an expression in Revelation 22, 5. They shall reign forever and ever. They shall reign into the ion of the ion. They shall reign into the eternity of the eternities is how long our salvation lasts. I say that's a pretty good promise. So salvation is forever. I think we need to understand that. And then many times the Bible says you are kept. God keeps you. And so listen to these verses, John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost. 2 Peter 1, 12. I know whom I have believed, I read this a minute ago, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him all the way until that day. Or listen to 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5. To an inheritance we have incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith until salvation, until you see him. That's a great promise. And Jude puts it this way. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless for the presence of his glory. He's able to keep you from now till then till you see the Lord. So we could go on with verses about keeping. What, what I'm doing by reading these, and I know you're not turning to them as fast as I'm reading, and I, I see why. The reason I'm reading these is, do we take what the Bible says plainly or not. Now, I know that people who differ with us uh, try to work these verses out in some other way. I'm just telling you, here they are, and to me, they're very plain. Well, the third thought there is that God will complete it. He'll perform it until that day. You remember Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll perform it clear until then. Not until you sin, 
not until uh, you, you uh, kind of have a bad day. He'll perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 3.13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So those are promises that we have. Short, there are three of them, but there are many of them in the Word of God. Do you know that, that God's promises cannot be broken? He can't break, he cannot lie, can he? The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. When God makes a covenant, he will keep that covenant. So in Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, it says the gifts and calling of God in the King James are without repentance. And in the New King James, it says, are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked if God has said them. So Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal that God knoweth them that are his, so let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There are that group of people called Reformed uh, Arminians. I, I told you that a minute ago. And I, I've just finished a book uh, uh, where their authors have uh, explained why they believe that you can give back salvation. If you can take it, you can give it back. If you came in that door, you can go back out that door and, and expressions like that. But uh, I say, first of all, life, the gift that God gave you is everlasting and you own it now. As a matter of fact, secondly, it's up to the giver to take it back and God won't take it back. He said he won't. And so you own it. He won't take it back. And that's the way it is. And thirdly, no true believer in Christ wants to give his salvation back. If somebody says, I don't want it anymore, you're looking at someone who never had it. But someone who has salvation, of course, wants to keep it. He wants even more assurance about it. And so these promises tell us those very things. Thirdly, there are some misunderstandings about this, of course. Why is it that good people can have different opinions? Why can good people look at the same verses and see different things? Well, because we must interpret the Scripture, and we must try to do it honestly and rightly. And, that, and we're, in, we're fallible creatures. We're not infallible. And so we have to work at it. But there's an old law called the law of non-contradiction. Do you remember? The law of non-contradiction means two things that are not the same, both can't be right. Two things that contradict each other can't be right. One of them can be right, or maybe neither of them are right, but they both can't be right if they're contradictory statements. And so I look at these promises that we've just read. I look at these things that God has said, and to me it's pretty plain that once you're saved, you're always saved. And so uh, to me, uh, if I don't understand a verse, I have to interpret the one I don't understand very well in the light of all of those that I do understand very well. And so I have to do it that way. But I've put here a couple things, one about 
non-believers, I call them hypocritical believers, and the other about true believers that sometimes are misunderstood. And that is, first of all, uh, there are those people in the Bible who were religious, but they were not saved. You understand that, don't you? There were religious people. I mean, after all, the Pharisees were very religious people. Were they saved? No, they weren't. We can't mistake somebody who's religious and then goes off into the world as losing their salvation. You know, here's an interesting verse in the end of John chapter 2. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, here's something you have to understand. The word believe can be not necessarily to salvation, just that I'm fascinated by those things. You know, Simon the sorcerer believed, and then later Paul po or Peter pointed out to him he wasn't saved. Well, here it says they believed when they saw the miracles that he did, but Jesus did not believe in them. It has it as Jesus did not commit himself unto them, but it's the same word for believe. They believed in him, and he didn't believe in them because he knew all men. He knew what was in their heart. And so it's not a matter of having it and losing it. It's a matter of never having it at all. There were a number of Gentiles in the Bible, as you have here, that were very good and religious people. Do you remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 2, or 10, I mean? He was a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house. He gave much alms to the people and prayed to God every day. And yet he's lost. God's going to come to him and say, you need to go to Peter so he can tell you how to be saved. So here's a good religious man, and we meet them all the time in our life, don't we? We meet good religious people who are doing good things, religious things, and yet they may not be saved. Lydia was a person like that in Acts 16 when Paul came to Philippi. And uh, he went down to the riverside, remember, on the Sabbath day where prayer was being made. And we sat down and spake to the women that resorted there. And a certain woman, a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God, heard us. And you know what? She was unsaved. She's at a prayer meeting. She's studying the word of God. And she's worshiping God, and she isn't saved yet. So Paul opens his mouth, gives her the gospel, and then she receives Christ as Savior. Interesting, I think. And there are more like that. As a matter of fact, we often speak of the Bereans, right? And we use that name, Berean Baptist Church or Berean whatever, because they, were, they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Do you know that the, the problem is they were doing that as lost people? So... Acts 17, 11, he came to Berea. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so, and then many of them believed. Paul comes, and they've never heard this before. They've never heard the gospel before. He preaches to them, and they're probably good Jews who had their Old Testament. They're searching the Scriptures and so forth, but they've never heard the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what am I saying here? You can be religious but lost. Judas is a great example, isn't he? Consider, consider the life of Judas for a minute. 
he came to John and was baptized. We know that because no one could become a disciple of Jesus Christ without John's baptism, Acts chapter 1. So how did, if John the Baptist is saying, you bring fruit and show me that you're saved, Judas brought something. And he explained somehow that he was a believer in what John was preaching. John baptized him. And then he goes out with Jesus, and he's preaching even, and doing the things that the other disciples are doing, and yet, of course, he's lost. We know he's not saved. We know he went to his own place. We know that he was a devil, Jesus called him that. And so, Judas is a great example of someone who actually was religious and everyone thought he was a believer and he was not. Did he lose salvation? No, there's no concept of that. He was known before the foundation of the world to be who he was. So there are, there are those who are religious. Secondly, there are those who are questioning whether or not they should get saved. Now, the book of Hebrews, I think, centers in on this. I know that among our good brethren who believe in eternal security, there's a, few, there's a couple different ways to look at what we call the warning passages. Five times in the book of Hebrews, there are these warning passages. Some may take these to be Christians who are being warned not to live in carnality, to live above it. Now, the Arminians believe they're being warned not to lose their salvation. I happen to take the view that these were unsaved probably Jewish people, it's written to Hebrews, that were trying to decide, do I go with these Christian people over here or do I go back to the temple worship and the Jewish worship over here? Which do I do? And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them not to go back to those things, but to go on to salvation, to faith in Christ. I think that's what's being said. Let me give you a short phrase from each of those five. In chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? They were about to neglect it. How can they escape the judgment that would come upon them if they neglect it? Chapter 3, verse 7, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. If you begin to hear his voice and you're under conviction, don't harden your heart toward the unbelief. Now, chapter 6 is a special one, a lot of controversy over this. If they fall away, dot, 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 it's impossible to renew them again to salvation. Let me come back to that verse in just a second. In chapter 10, verse 26, if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no other sacrifice for sin. If we willingly walk away from it and go back to our sinful lives, uh, you don't have any other way to come to God. That's it. And then in chapter 12, verse 25, see then that you do not refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse the message that's coming to you. I gave you just a short verse out of each one. Now, in, in Acts chapter 6, this is a difficult one. Let me read the passage to you, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible... For those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, 
to renew them again to repentance. It would be impossible for them to come again to repentance. That's why the Reformed Arminians say, if you give up your salvation, it's impossible for you to get it back. You can't get it back. Whereas the other Arminians would say, you can lose it, you can get it back. You can lose it, you can get it back. Back and forth you go. Now, it may be, and many good men take this as a description of believers. Here's why I think they are still unbelievers. Because, first of all, there are five warning passages, and the other four warning passages are very clear that it's speaking to lost people. So here is the one that seems a little hard to understand. But I believe this. I believe that you can be enlightened but not be saved. You can hear the gospel. You can be informed about what you need. You can taste of the heavenly gift. You can taste a little bit, taste of what it would be like to be a believer and have eternal life. You can be partakers of the Holy Spirit in the sense that word means partner. When the disciples were fishing and they had a big catch and, and they couldn't pull the net into the boat themselves, they called for their partners who came and helped them get the net into the boat. The Holy Spirit can be a person's partner. As a matter of fact, I believe Every person who's under conviction about getting saved is for a little bit a partner with the Holy Spirit. He's come alongside them, and he's helping them. And you can taste of the Word of God in the same way and the powers of Christianity and still fall away and still say, I don't want it. You know, I grew up in churches that gave long and hard invitations and I kind of liked it. My, my church was a large, very large church, thousands of people, as a matter of fact. And boy, that preacher was a hard preacher, and we would sing. Uh, I didn't know there were 16 verses to Just As I Am, but we sung them. And, and, he, and he was saying, you need, you need to come, you need to come now. And I can remember seeing people with their hands on the back of the pew in front of them and their knuckles are white and they're hanging on and they're just not going to go. I think that's a description of Hebrews chapter 6. And there are a lot of people who, who are in that situation and they're so close. The Holy Spirit is convicting them and they don't go. So I think that's what that passage means, not that they fall away into unbelief. Now, thirdly, under the hypocrite, the religious is that there are some people who are just false. There really are people who have never been saved, but they pretend to be saved for a while. They can't live that way for very long. You can't be a hypocrite forever. If you're not really saved, trying to pretend to be a Christian, whether in church or around Christian people, uh, it just doesn't happen. So listen to 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. They leave because they're unsaved. They didn't lose their salvation. Titus 1.16 says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. And there's that great passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 at the end of the chapter 21 and 22 that uh, someone labeled, this is the hogs and dogs uh, passage, the hogs and dogs. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, but it has happened unto them 
According to the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his vomit, and the sow, I say the hog, is, re, is washed, uh, or uh, was washed, uh, has returned to its mire. The dog back to its vomit, the hog back to the mud. And, and why? Because he was a dog. And why? Because he's a hog. And that's where tr the, their true nature took them back to. And what he's saying is a person that's not saved, sooner or later, their true nature will take them back to there. Now, in that same point that we're talking about, and that is number three here, there were those hypocritical lost people. But secondly, you have to understand that there are carnal believers, that Christians can sin, that Christians do sin. And the question is, does that sin make us lost? And the fact is, no. And this is why I like the word preservation, but even if we were, use the word perseverance, it means that God will preserve me throughout my life. I have an advocate who stands before the throne and intercedes for me. I have the blood of Christ who cleanses me from all sin. I have, all of those, I have the Holy Spirit inside me who seals me. All of these things mean that even when I sin, my sin is taken care of. Now, can I use this expression? That's adult language. Because there are those who say, well, then you can just sin all you want, and it doesn't matter, huh? You've heard that, and I have too. Uh, well, if that's the case, you can sin and never lose it. Uh, you know, why not do that? Because your nature has changed. You're not a hog or a dog anymore. You're a child of God, and that child will go on. And that sin comes into your life. It brings conviction. It brings repentance. You confess that before God, and you go on. And so that cannot cause us to lose salvation. Now, you can lose your joy. Was David not a sinner when he, had, when he took a man's wife, committed adultery with her, and then killed her husband? Was he not in sin? But he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. That's Psalm 51. And so he didn't lose it, but he lost his joy. There's no more miserable person than a Christian who's living in that kind of sin. And I don't know how you can get much worse sin than those two things. And yet he only lost his joy. You can, you can lose the love that the Lord has placed in your heart. The, the church at Ephesus, Revelation 2, 4, and 5, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, Jesus said, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember from whence you are fallen, repent, and do the first works. You, you can repent of this. You can turn back around and go the way you should go. But you lose the love that is in your heart even through the Lord. And some people can lose their life. It is true that it's up to God and not up to us, and we don't even know these things, but if God wants to take a believer home early because of his or her sin, that's his business and he can do it. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, those who, who misuse the Lord's Supper, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And they've lost their life. And in 1 John 5.16, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. And then John says about believers, there is a sin unto death. 
I do not say that you should pray for that. That's God's business. There's a sin unto death for Christians. And so you can be carnal, obviously, and still be saved. As a matter of fact, you can't get yourself lost. But if you don't repent and don't turn back around from your carnal life, God may take you home early. I don't know. You don't know that, and you can't judge somebody by that. I want, one more thing I want to say about carnal believers, and that is we lose our rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, the, the reason for the Bema Seat of Christ, it is our judgment, not the judgment of the lost. Believers go at the rapture to the Bema Seat of Christ, and we are there not to judge our salvation. That's been prejudged already but rather whether or not we gain rewards in our life as we walked, as we ran the race for Christ. And that's very important. That's where the Lord will hold us accountable. That's where he holds his own children accountable. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 3 is one passage. 2 Corinthians 5 is another passage. But 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, If any man's work shall be burned up, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved so as by fire, or sometimes we say by the skin of your teeth. I mean, some people will be there at the Bema Seat of Christ with hardly any reward, but they're still saved. Why? Because they're eternally secure. We have, for example, uh, in chapter 5, where a man is committing adultery with his stepmother, and Paul says, deliver such an one unto Satan, that is, discipline him in the way the church should do it, for the destruction of the flesh, if that's what God allows, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. No matter what God does to him as he deals with that person in chastisement, his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's a sad story to read, isn't it? But you know what? It brings us comfort to read things like, even like David did and like this man did and to realize the Bible makes it plain. They didn't lose their salvation. Have you ever sinned in your Christian life? Do I need to ask you that? Do I need to ask if we've ever sinned? Uh, you know, in actions and thought and all kinds of ways. And, and it's a comfort to me to see this kind of thing where, Paul, where God says, but yet they are saved even uh, in the day of the Lord Jesus. I know I am too. So there are crowns to be won, right? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's doing. And I like what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Now, some athlete wants a corruptible crown. Then he says, but we an incorruptible. We strive for an incorruptible crown. So he'll go on to say, so I beat my body and keep it in subjection so that I'm not put on the sidelines, so I'm not a castaway. So these things all tell us, though there are misunderstandings about these passages, I think they reinforce the fact that we have eternal life. Now, I'm going to say one more thing quickly, and that's the confidence about it. And I'll say these things just very shortly. And that, and that is this, that first of all, if the Bible says it, you can believe it. Why did you 
accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Anybody ever ask you that? Why did you do that? And you know what the bottom line is? You may have various reasons and answers, but the bottom line is that's what the Bible told me to do. <laughs> the Bible said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. The Bible said, uh, accept. The Bible said, come. The Bible said, receive. That's what I did. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's what I did. And guess what? I was saved. And so I'm saying that if the Bible says it, uh, then you can trust it and trust those plain statements out of Scripture. It's the best counselor in the world. Now, second to that is the witness of the Spirit. If you have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit on your side, it's hard to defeat those things. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That Holy Spirit comes back to you and says, You're my child. You belong to me. And if you have the promises written in the Word of God, and you have that witness of the Spirit, and by the way, if you're not saved, the Spirit's not there. But with that conviction and with that assurance that the Holy Spirit gives you, brings you that assurance. And thirdly, I would say, you have the witness of your conscience. You know, here are a couple verses about people who are unsaved and what their conscience is like. Titus 1.15, Under the pure all things are pure. But unto them which are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. That's a problem with lost people. Their conscience is so seared and, and uh, defiled, they can't think right. So in 1 Timothy 4.2, they are speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that's the conscience of a lost person. Here's the conscience of a saved person. Hebrews uh, 10.22, let us draw near with a pure heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, now unto the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and faith unfeigned or unhypocritical. I've watched a lot of people die in my ministry and my life. But I tell you what, when a person can come to that, when you are facing death, you are facing eternity, and it's only a few minutes away, to see the assurance of people of God, men and great men and women that I have known, and to see them enter into that valley, the shadow of death, with joy and with confidence and knowing where they're going and knowing what the Lord has done to them. That is a great thing, folks. It is a great thing. I've got much more to say about the subject. Uh, there's a, there is a lot more to say. Do you know that the book of life is mentioned five times in, in the, in the uh, uh, book of Revelation? But it says there that your names were written in that book before the foundation of the world. I think because of the foreknowledge of God. Uh, he knew you before the foundation of the world. If your name has been written there, it also says it can't be blotted out of the, of, the, of the book of life. So there you go. If my name's been in there that long and nobody can blot it out, not even myself, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad for it. The question is, is your name there? Is it in the book of life? If it is, it can't be blotted out. All right, stand with me if you will. I read a lot of verses to you tonight, didn't I? 
So you may just have to go home and listen to this again and listen to those verses. But my emphasis tonight was, does the Bible say it or does it not? And that's what we have to trust in. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts as we sing again and uh, end our service that way. Father, thank you for these promises. Thank you, Father, that we have everlasting life. Thank you that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation from here to the day of our redemption. Thank you, Father, for these things. Even when we fail, even when we sin, you are there to lift us up, that you are our advocate uh, for our sins, and we thank you for that. So, Father, give us the confidence in this that we need and help us, Father, to know what we believe because of these things. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kent, come and lead us in a song. It's him.